Thank you for knocking. Shut the door behind you, please. Uh, lock the door. Make sure that towel is properly positioned. And the only thing that we ask, Pete, is that you use the spoof. Peter Liska, <laughs> your co-host, as always, How you doing? in Los Angeles, California. How are things? Very good, man. How you doing? Very good. Our other co-pilot, Roger Mayer, yes, in Los dude. Angeles as well. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Tonight, uh, we have a very uh, special opportunity to come together and celebrate and uh, um, rejoice uh, on a project that everyone in this uh, podcast was a part of. Uh, the film was called Amigos Gay Cuba, and we're uh, lucky enough to be uh, joined by uh, Mr. Rene LaCour. How are you doing? Good evening. How are you doing, guys? Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. really stoked. Thanks for taking the time. And we have the film's director, Vanessa Wilkie Escobar in Los Angeles as well. How are you tonight? I'm great. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Vanessa, before we do the real deep dive, can you just tell us what it was like? Uh, what kind of emotions were you feeling as the film was shown uh, at a drive-in in Los Angeles? Uh, just Was it just about a week ago? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just about a week ago, Saturday. Um, it was it was really it was really great. Um, it was nice to have an opportunity to see it um, in front of you know our LA family, and uh, even though it was a drive-in experience, it was nice to finally be able to share it with everyone there and be local in our our home city. Um, it was a blast, and the drive-in experience was super great. If you have an opportunity to go to a drive-in, I would definitely do it during COVID. It's really fun. Yeah, it looked really uh, awesome. And I think it just made the experience a little more unique for, uh, you know, for that event. Uh, it looked really exciting. And uh, I know we want to do uh, a little origin story about Amigo Skate. And I think the best way to do that is if we uh, kick it over to Renee. Renee, I read a little uh, piece uh, about you from uh, a a small publication called the Miami Herald. It's a couple of years old, but I really like what you said. Uh, if Mother Teresa and Joey Ramone were have a love child, it would have been Amigo Skate Cuba. <laughs> you, uh, I like that you mentioned Joey Ramone, who a lot of folks think is one of the uh, pillars of punk rock. You, uh, your story starts in New York City. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and lived there till I was about eight or nine years old. Fam we actually traveled around a little bit before we left the city, lived in New Jersey, lived in Miami, um, anywhere where there was a ghetto, I feel like my mom would move to. Um, but uh, we relocated to the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, when I was about not eight or nine, about nine or 10 years old. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, man, because I, you know, where we, lived you know my, my my mother was a single parent and worked very hard and I was I guess what you call the latchkey kid in those days so my world literally revolved from walking home from school and then if I went outside it was on the stoop mm -hmm. and you know I, like you played ball throwing the tennis ball up against the stairs and that's how you played catch and we moved to Georgia and it was like the the great outdoors you know what I mean like we the suburbs that we lived in, it was an apartment complex and behind the apartment complex was woods. And if you walk deep enough in the woods, there was a creek and there was like an old abandoned Civil War cemetery. And um, 
kids were playing football and I got into BMX and just, it was the most beautiful experience of my life. Like it was awesome. That sounds great, man. Uh, I also thought it was interesting when I read a little bit about you moving down to Miami two weeks after uh, Hurricane Andrew. And uh, Hurricane Andrew, unless I'm mistaken, was one of the worst hurricanes to hit the mainland U.S. uh, prior to Hurricane Katrina. What can you tell us about uh, you moved down to Miami and specifically what was Miami must have been a really exciting city at that time in the early nineties, uh, still kind of a frontier, so to speak. Uh, the Miami hurricanes were kind of holding up a mirror to youth culture, uh, a little outlaw nature to that. Uh, and you went down there to spin some records. So what was that like being in Miami in the early nineties and, uh, what kind of music were you playing? What was it like? Dude, it's funny that you asked that because I was just thinking about that a couple of days ago and just how it, it was it was such it was such a surreal time that it I almost don't believe it looking back on yeah. it. So first let me say that there I was a lot going to, on. Dude, it was <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. I moved to I moved to Miami actually two weeks before Hurricane Andrew. And I was 20, I don't know, one years old, maybe. Um, and moved to Miami. Be- I, I had just started DJing. I was living in North Carolina, uh, DJing at like the, the one little nightclub across the street from UNC. And um, that must have been cool, though, Chapel Hill. Dude, so check this out. So I was a punk rock kid all the way up through high school, moved to Chapel Hill, the grunge scene was just developing there got to see every, all of my favorite bands Soundgarden, just all these amazing bands of course also started getting the public enemy who to me was like a black punk rock band you know what i mean they were just so to make a long story short public enemy was coming to chapel hill to play a show and we also used to work i used to work at a pizzeria and i used to not work as a dj yet Anyway, I went to go see Public Enemy and I'm walking through the parking lot and my girlfriend has this huge mohawk and we're like dressed in leather and these like hood rats start yelling at my girlfriend. So, of course, I'm like, fuck you. Before I know it, they have totally whipped my ass. Right. When I came to Terminator X and the SOWs are picking me up off the ground and carrying me backstage. (laughs) And they're like, you are the craziest white boy we have ever seen. So I'm backstage. I can't even believe that this is happening because these are like these mythical figures on the back of the album cover. Yeah, you got Terminator X and Professor Griff giving you a hand there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking (laughs) when when I mean, when I came to like I they were so one guy was holding me and the other guys were hitting me. So when I woke up, all these like, like, you know, it was the S1Ws. It was, it was yeah. wow. I'm like, are they going to throw me in a ditch? Like what the fuck <laughs> is happening right now? <laughs> so I, I, I come to, and Terminator X is like, I really like your, cause I had a leather jacket on like a motorcycle jacket and it had chains and you know, the Ramones patch of course. And he's like, Hey, I have a white magic marker. Do you want me to, I'll draw something cool on your fuck. Are you kidding me? So he fucking bombed the side of my jacket. 
You know so, what's awesome, man? I was just, sorry to interrupt, I was in the Rock and yeah. Roll Hall of Fame uh, a couple months ago, and they had a display of uh, Public Enemy, who just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame not too long ago, and they had Terminator X's uh, Techniques uh, record player that he signed. Get out of here. Pretty awesome, yeah. Pretty cool, man. This story's going to take forever, but <laughs> let, let me just say that, so I met, I saw Public Enemy play, it, like, blew my mind automatically i wanted to be in hip-hop but i was still this punk rock kid terminator x comes back three months later to do a dj show by himself i'd never seen anything like that before i'm like how what is going to happen terminator x just him and he's just going to play records like what what is that all about so we all go down there and i watch him djing and i'm like that was the most powerful thing i had ever seen one man do and I'm like, I want to do that now. So because of the ass whooping that I got, I had made friends with um, his like road manager and one of his cousins. And after the show, we're out back drinking beers. And I'm like, I want to learn how to DJ, dude. How do I? I mean, I'm just like on and on and on and on. So he's like, OK, uh, I'm coming back in a couple of weeks. Let's hook up and I'm going to teach you how to DJ. So Terminator X's yeah. cousin came back to town and taught me how to DJ. And then after that, I kept pursuing it. And I, that was my career for 15 years. And, and from there, I moved to Atlanta. Couldn't get a job to save my life in Atlanta DJing. And then somebody goes, if you really want to be a DJ, the Mecca right now is South Beach. And um, I had like 200 bucks. And I went down there two weeks before Hurricane Andrew got myself this shitty little apartment, spent the rest of my money on Lollapalooza tickets, went to Lollapalooza. The OG Lollapalooza was at Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Iced Tea. And, and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Pearl Jam. Might have been there. Actually, Pearl, Pearl Jam, Jam yeah. was playing in Soundgarden yeah. and, um, and took a bunch of ecstasy and woke up the next day and found out that there was a fucking hurricane coming. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to evacuate my, my apartment on the beach because it was going to be underwater. And I'm like, well, I don't even, I just spent all my money on drugs. <laughs> Where am I going to go? Anyway, uh, um, that's, how I, that's how I started my illustrious DJ career in South Beach. And the music you were playing uh, in those days, what, were you hip hop? Were you doing like electronic music? So or? when I got there, I thought I was going to set the world on fire as a hip hop DJ. But when I arrived in South Beach, there was no hip hop allowed. There was there You're was doing a lot of bass music. back. It was called bass, right? There was bass. Well, there was bass music, but that wasn't South Beach. South Beach was a gay music scene. Okay. 100% house music. There was one big giant mega nightclub that was uh, a gay house music club. So all, and then there was a couple little bars and they were playing like rock and roll and just, just started to have DJs. So there was no hip hop DJs. Um, so was two live crew big. They were from Miami at that point. In time. They were in Miami, but South beach and Miami okay. was two Different. separate worlds. So right. South beach was a ghost town. Number one. Wow. Um, it was old Jewish retirees, drug dealers, and drag queens, and just people that were like hiding out. You know what I mean? Like if you were in South Beach at that time, you were literally hiding out from somebody. It was the, the coolest experience in my the apartment building that I lived in. First of all, I was the only straight person. No, not, there was two people that were straight in the whole <laughs> building. 
me and this chick named Sushi, who was also the person who got me that apartment and my first DJ job. Um, on Friday nights, we lived on the first floor. Dude, I, I swear this is true. On Friday nights, it was all, you were all like 21, 22. So on Friday nights, they would open up all the, everyone would open their doors and the drag queens would do drag shows dancing up and down the hallways. Like one would come out with a fucking garbage bag and duct tape and a <laughs> bowl of fruit on her head. And dude, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was man. so much fun. So I started DJ. So my first gig in Miami Beach was at um, a drag queen show. And I the I got the job because the two guys that owned the place were really good friends with Sushi. And she had been hearing me DJ in my little apartment because I had all my gear with me. And she was like, this kid is really good. You should give him a chance. So they let me on. And what were you were playing? Like, what were well, you playing? They, I said, they said, what do you want to play? And I'm like, well, I want to play. Um, this is what I like to play. I like to play hip hop. And I, cause I like to play everything. And at that time they were just playing house music. Yeah. And he was like, look, I don't care what you play as long as it's fucking, as long as it kicks ass. This is Barrio <laughs> bar in South beach. Um, it was a, it, so it was a Mexican restaurant, but on Monday nights they'd have a drag, sh drag shows and the entire staff would dress in drag. So there's 21 year old hip hop me with the hat cocked sideways. And dude, I went in there and tore that fucking place down. All of a sudden introduced hip hop to that scene because at that time, hip hop was so underground that if you were on the outskirts, you were kind of into it already. Mm -hmm. So the gay community was into it but they didn't have a way to listen to it anyway. So yeah. I started playing hip hop and funk. And at that time, acid jazz was really big. Mm -hmm. right. uh, Delight, you know what I mean? And if, yeah, you, yeah. if you really think about Delight, it was like, you know, Q-Tip is on there. Yeah. So what I did was I took Delight and I took all the elements that were in that band. And that's what I would base my set on. So it would be like the Ohio players, Tribe Called Quest, yeah. uh, a disco tune, and boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And from that little gig, which I didn't even get paid, I used to do it for dinner because I was also starving at the time. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't. From that gig, I started getting more gigs, more gigs, and more gigs. And I ended up, not to, you know, toot my own horn, but. <laughs> so at the peak of my career, I was DJing seven nights a week. Uh, in Miami Beach during the season and was the first DJ in South Beach. Since my background was in live music, I was like, how come DJs don't ever tour like rock bands do? So I was the first DJ out of all those guys. And I'm talking about DJ Khaled, like all those big name DJs that are big names now. All those guys, we all came up together, and I was the first one that went out and actually went on tour. Are you talking about like, like Kid Capri and Red Alert and like Funk all of those? Yeah, so we're all guys. kind of like yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm the generation right under Kid Capri's. Yeah. Um, but the only difference with me is that I, in order from, I really wanted to monetize what I was doing. So I would play, I would play. You know, on Monday nights I played a, a, a hip hop gig, and then on Tuesday nights I would do an acid jazz thing. Then on another night I'd play funk. I'd play house music. I house. wouldn't care. I played at the Gay Pride, yeah. uh, uh, the Gay uh, 
Pride Week in Atlanta, Georgia. And on the flyer, it said DJ Sugar straight from Miami because <laughs> that was the only. <laughs> and I and and they asked me. This was 1990. I don't even know what. They asked me to please come and only play hip hop. That's great. Well, Renee, yeah, it was insane. That's amazing, Renee. Stuff, I I feel like we could do a couple of episodes on all those uh, exploits in Miami. But fast forward, can you uh, take us up to the point where you're doing? Amigo Skate, can you give a little education on that? And can you also tell us how you uh, came to meet Vanessa and how the film came about? So, Amigo, when we met Vanessa, Amigo Skate, I think we had been running now for about four years. Um, can you give time. us a time frame? What, like, what year are we talking about? I guess Vanessa, when did we meet in 2014, something mm-hmm. like that? When we started, when we started talking. Yeah. 2014, I think maybe, yeah. maybe 13. No, it was like 14, 14. Yeah. And I don't remember, I don't remember exactly how we met, but I do remember that I was really impressed when I looked up what she had, the the project that she had done with, um, how what's that? What's the Puerto Rican skater's name? Manny with Santiago. Manny, with Manny Santiago. I remember looking that up and I'm like, damn, that's really rad. We just hit the jackpot. So Vanessa, <laughs> what do you Vanessa, 2014, what do you remember? What were you doing at that time? You were where were you and how did this whole you know, what was your thought process at that point in time? Um I had actually just I had actually just finished the project with Manny Santiago. I was shooting a a a three-part series in Puerto Rico with him. And, um, and who is all- Manny Santiago for the folks that don't know who he is? Oh, Manny Santiago is a Puerto Rican skateboarder. He's a, he's a, a Puerto Rican, you know, he lives in California, but he, he goes Post-meter. back to Puerto Rico every single year um, to do a, um, a tour with his, his buddies. And at the end, they do a big contest, um, kind of like what Rene does with the kids. And then they give away uh, prizes and stuff. Um, I think it's the, the Prince of Puerto Rico. The Prince that, of Puerto Rico, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so he's been doing that, you know, throughout his career, and it's just his way of giving back to his community. And so I went to Puerto Rico and followed him um, and, and made a series with him and his crew. And then when I got done, um, I stopped in Miami to visit my family and um, some friends, and I went to go visit my friend um, Danny, who's in uh he's down there and he's in the arts district and he told me I told him everything that I've been doing and we you know got into deep conversation he was like oh you should meet this guy um Renee LaCour you know he's he's got this charity organization that he's um that he's running and goes to Cuba and he does something similar to that you you know maybe it would be an interesting story for you or just someone interesting to meet and I was like yeah that sounds great and he gave me his number and um, I called him up and then I actually left a voicemail and, um, didn't expect to hear back, but I heard back in like, I think five minutes and, um, he called me from the airport. He was just leaving. He just got back from Havana, actually, just literally like was walking through the airport. He was all out of breath. He's like, yeah, no, it sounds great. Are you going to be around tonight? And I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, why don't you come over and, and, you know, meet me and my partner and, and we'll, we'll chat. I was like, that sounds great. So I went over there and, and met him and that was kind of it. 
And Renee. Yeah, that- that's that's right. I forgot that. I was literally walking off the plane when she called. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And what were you doing in uh, Havana at that point, uh, Renee? Were you, um, can you tell the listeners a little bit, can you uh, shade the background a little bit about what was going on at that point in time in your life? And uh, were you traveling to uh, Havana? Was Amigo Skate up and running at that point? Yeah, Amigo was up and running, but we were still kind of figuring out exactly what we were doing. Um, At the time, our main focus, I think, was just taking donations down as often as we could with as many people as we could. Um, But we were still growing and learning from our mistakes and things were moving really fast. I mean, we had just we had just kind of, um, I guess, expanded in the amount of volunteers that we had. And also up the amount of times that we were visiting the island. So it was a really exciting time for us. And then literally walking off the plane, it was like, boom. Somebody just called it. They're interested in like filming what we do. I mean, it was like, I remember being really excited and and just couldn't believe that. You know what I mean? We just got back from Cuba. Something else is happening. (laughs) That's that's amazing. I mean, is it fair to say that? the timing of when you two connected was a little bit of a kismet situation in that you're experiencing this kind of uh, up time in Amigo skate. And then all of a sudden this documentarian comes along and you just kind of rolled in together because the film is incredible and watching the, the, just the volume of skateboards and supplies that you brought on film i don't know was that a common thing or was that kind of like wow this is a great thing we're witnessing that this whole huge shipment happens to be going down there i mean keep in mind you guys are smuggling all these things in which i found really amazing but had you had that kind of experience prior or was it lucky that you guys were able to capture this in this in this great documentary um, yeah, the way Vanessa and I met and the, just the whole timing of the way everything worked out, it really reached like its peak when, when, when Vanessa came down the film. Cause we, like I said, our mission was growing and growing and growing. And I would say some of the, I don't want to say some of the greatest things that we've ever done were at that time, but we were definitely just like banging out these milestone events as we were going and at that time that for the the biggest events that we were doing in Havana just happened to coincide with the fact that Vanessa and the crew was traveling with us so it was just amazing and just go ahead Vanessa no I was just gonna say I think also too because you intertwine um people coming into the country to help you smuggle things in and just the fact that um President Obama had kind of opened up the country a bit for travel, mm-hmm. also helped to elevate the amount of people that were able to go, which only increased the amount of supplies that you were able to bring in. And so just like that, that in combination with the, the desire for people to go to Cuba, um, whether they were into skateboarding or not, really helped to elevate the supply you were able to bring. And then obviously that looked amazing on camera for us too. It only made us look like, I mean, it was, it was a really extreme moment i think for yeah. for all all points yeah it was a yeah. zeitgeist moment for you guys 
It really was. And, and honestly, like, you know, I was, I was inspired to go to Cuba because my brother had just gotten permission from his university to go study in Cuba, which wouldn't have happened had the door, the, um, had, had the permission not been granted for him. And I was like, oh, if you're going to Cuba, I want to go to Cuba. And that's what prompted me to like explore ways to get there. And then the conversation happened with my friend and, you know, then I met Renee and, you know, everything just kind of snowballed into this like magical moment. So I would say it was definitely kismic in that way. Yeah. The timing was crazy. Like, like I said, I think for up until that time, the most amount of skateboards or donations that we ever took in one trip had to have been on that first and second trip with you guys. The, at the same time, the Cuban government was approaching us to, to explore a partnership with them. It was at the same time that Vanessa started talking to us. We were at the same time, we were starting to build a DIY spot uh, in, 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 in an abandoned park. So the timing was just ridiculous. And we had just come off of, a really bad experience with another filmmaker right before this one. And it was a fucking disaster. You know what I mean? And Chris and I will, me more than anyone was like, I never want to do that again. I never, I'm never, I, I don't want to film anything ever again. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was a nightmare. And then, to, wait, what? I, I, now I got to know what happened on that. <laughs> Well, I mean, so they were, these weren't documentarians. These guys were used to making films. And then on top of that, the, the director couldn't get his visa done in time. So on the very first trip, he couldn't go. His film crew, which I told from the very beginning, listen, we're like, we're like guerrilla fighters. Like we go in the car, zoom, we're going to get to the spot. We're going to jump out and it's going to be mayhem for 15 minutes and then we'll get in the car and we're going to go. If you guys aren't set up, you're going to miss it. You're going to blow it. And, I, and at that time we were gnarlier than we met Vanessa because we were really just kind of running from place to place. Cause we didn't want to get in trouble. <clears throat> so I, I, you know, I told them, I will tell you where we're going to be and what time and you guys have to set up before we get there. Because if a lot of kids show up and the police show up, we're done. And if you're not set up, you're going to blow the shot. Well, we were there for a week and it was like blow after blow. <laughs> like they couldn't get their shit together. They were getting lost. They were slowing me down. They wanted me to stop. And the thing is that, you know, when I explained all these things to Vanessa, she was like, yeah, it's no problem. Yeah, it's no problem. Yeah, it's no problem. Like Vanessa also, I'm very hands-on at what I do and I get really, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't run it like a tight shit because it's kind of a, a hot mess, but I'm like, I'm kind of laser focused when, 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 when things are happening. So I, I, if I, I'd rather not stop to do an interview while we're in the mix. And she was like, all right, that's cool. No problem. These guys were the opposite. They would pull me out and yeah. be like, okay, so now let me, and they would, you know, jam the camera in my face and start asking me like what I thought were stupid questions. And at one point <laughs> I didn't realize it. And I had the, 
the wireless mic on and, and they walked away and started talking <laughs> shit about them. And Yulka looks at me, she goes, Renee, your microphone's on. I'm like, oh, Jesus. That was the last day. We well, we didn't see them for, like, they left two days early. And so they then tried I got to manufacture really... the movie were as opposed to actually let the movie happen in real Big time. time. Like yeah. I said, I mean, and, and they were much older. Like, the, the yeah, cameraman. Problem too. <laughs> yeah, he was like 70 plus years old, which very gifted and, and and nice guys it's just that they weren't a good fit for what this was and i was very honest with them in the beginning and told them listen it's going to be a lot of running back and forth and i mean vanessa knows and they were they got it and they understood and they would get you know we would sit down and 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 we would figure out what the shots were going to be that day and they would get there before us and then we would do our interviews after and it just everything that we did with with Vanessa and, and 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 that crew just made sense. You know what I mean. The one the one thing I can say definitely about the movie is just it has the cinema verite guerrilla style very much inherent in the film, but somehow in the middle of all that mayhem, there was also a lot of poetry. So I agree. somehow there was a synthesis of those two elements that combined to make and create that film and make it as good as it is. And Listen, I I tell Vanessa that all the time. I've watched every single documentary about cuba that's on uh prime video amazon prime video right now and i mean yes i not just because i'm in it because i do enjoy <laughs> hearing myself speak you guys know that but um it's just quality i mean it really i feel like you can watch it and you don't necessarily have to be into skateboarding to to enjoy the story and it's shot really well it doesn't get boring a lot of times you see documentaries about sports and eventually you'll be like okay i've seen this guy do that long enough you know what i mean okay i get it you're riding a 10 speed across the fucking sahara but you know 10 days later you're still complaining about it now it's getting boring you know what i mean so i didn't feel like there was a lot of that in in hers i i, I thought that there was a good flow um I, I thought there was some beautiful cinematography in it and um i think it had the potential to get stale you know what i mean because and, and i mean it, it totally could have renee like just just the uh the expose on just the amazing friends you have down there that those people i mean are just you fall in love with just about everybody in that you're helping down there and and what you're doing for those kids to the charity is really just something else i mean you, you you talk about it in the film you're giving them skateboards but it's not just that it's a community it's a it's a way to transport from point a to point b and i that at that point in the film when you say that it touches me very much because it's it's incredible that it's illegal and it's incredible that you actually have to smuggle these things in to that and speaking of smuggling I do want to touch on another interesting part of the uh, of the film, Vanessa. You also have a connection to the smuggling aspect of it, because as a Cuban American, your grandmother would smuggle items and bring them back to <laughs> Cuba. To and it's funny because along this whole line of kismet and 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 everything you have a very personal situation that relates to what Renee was doing. How do you guys get things in there? You got to smuggle it in. And you grew up hearing stories of, of things being smuggled into Cuba. And here you have in real time, someone doing almost the same thing. And I've always found that that 
connection to the film was very special as well. If you care to elaborate on that, we'd, I know we'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that was actually one of the, one of the points that Renee and I talked about when we first met, I remember, you know, we talked about not maybe specifically that, but, um, I asked him because Renee's Cuban American as well, you know, what, what did it feel like when you went there for the first time? What did it look like to you? Does it look like, does, I asked him, does it look like the postcard that you imagine in your mind when everybody tells you the stories over time? And he was like, you know, I know exactly what you mean. And I'll never forget that conversation because I knew that if he understood what I meant when I said that, then like he really understood, like we really were going to get along because it's, it's a certain, it's a certain like imaginative kind of place in that you, you are just imagining things when you only have black and white photos to go off of or the only other kind of like film documentation that you might see are all fictional stories that are from the perspective of Americans oftentimes. And they're about like the grandioseness of Havana and its prime and not really the stories that your grandmother are telling you, which is something that Renee and I were able to really talk about because we had that in common we both in like we both realized in that moment that we had that one thing in common it was really magical for me because I I knew in that moment that we were really going to get along and that we were going to be able to create something together and it's just sort it's a it's a moment in our meeting that I hold dear to my heart because I'll never forget the conversation that I had with him and I I think he got really excited about about it too because it was it was it was it's just something that we both shared and just this idea of like the, just envisioning Cuba as this kind of abstract concept that's like a painting and then, and then walking on the streets for the first time and then it becoming a reality, if that makes sense. That's absolutely amazing. And, and it's interesting too, because as different as you guys may be on paper, you're, you're very similar in your spirit and your heart and, and where your heart is as far as all that goes. And I've come to observe that over the years, watching you guys work together as well. Vanessa, I would like to ask you a question about from the filmmaker's point of view, as a, a, a first time director, a woman, uh, um, what was that like uh, to present your film in Miami and actually come away with a victory? I know you're your brother and your sister were there. Can you just take us through what you were feeling and how great of a feeling was that? It was incredible. And, and all of you were there too. Like, and that was really very magical as well. And all of you've played such a huge role, obviously, you know, in your, in different capacities, um, personally and otherwise, um, in the film. And, uh, it was amazing to have that support as well, but, to be able to present the film in Miami amongst what is probably the most intimidating group of peers I could possibly imagine, which is uh, Miami Cuban Americans and Cubans alike, um, was terrifying to be honest with you. <laughs> um, the premiere that we screened um, for the film festival that they asked me to speak at, I basically begged Renee to speak. I was like, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> I was terrified because, you know, I, I grew up Cuban American, but I grew up 
everywhere but Miami. And so Miami to me is like the Mecca and it's really scary. Um, and to walk away from there with a victory was shocking and incredible and exhilarating. And, you know, I, I never would have expected it. And I was just, I was so proud of all of us and our, our team. And, and I was so grateful that everybody could be there. I mean, it was, it was magical. It was hey, really Vanessa, magical. if I may, um, we're living in, uh, not to sound cliche, but the post me too era. Um, what could you speak to in terms of after all of that dirt has been swept away? Um, do you feel like there's more opportunities for strong uh, women with stories to tell? Um, what would you say to young girls who have aspirations that are inspired by film, that love film and want to be filmmakers uh, that would probably look up to you for what you have achieved? Um, you know, what is your uh, state of the union after all the smoke is cleared? You know, the last two years has been a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, old white dudes have been swept away. Um, where do we stand right now in your point of view? Well, I, I feel like it's really hopeful. Um, I see a lot of films and documentaries coming out um, that are directed by women. I see a lot of storylines that are about women's stories. And I have to say it is so refreshing and um, I'm loving, I'm loving it. I'm loving hearing other women's stories. I, I didn't know how tired I was of hearing men's stories. I gotta be honest about it. And, it, um, and, 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 and one thing I would say, <laughs> is, it, is it just that men don't, Roger, is it that men that just don't know how to write women? I know it's not an excuse, but is that part of it? Are you asking me that question? I mean, specifically <laughs> for some reason? Um, the, it's funny. funny. No. Pull me out of the bullpen right now. It's the male gaze, man. You know, the G-A-Z-E. It's the, it's the, the perspective of the white male paternalistic attitude that we've had for eons is indoctrinated in all forms of life, you know, in, in from religion, in, in, in art, in politics. So, I mean, it's more and bigger than just <coughs> entertainment. And I will say that there is, you know, within the, the rooms that we're in right now, you know, is producing movies, actively moving forward. There's, you know, right now being a, a white male film director, particularly middle age, is not the best place to be right in, in those in those meetings right now, which is a great thing, which is fantastic. You but know, Roger, you know what? They can hate on the boomers, but the Gen X guys, we know that we know what's up, right? Well, you, do they? <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I, yeah, guess, I, they I got friends of mine who are upset about it themselves, thinking that they still are going to lose, you know, and they're wrong. They're on the wrong side of history. You know, we're about uh, to I for, I for one the second here for the change. I think it's more about it being time for the female voice to be heard. I think that there's there's some time to make up for, and I think that it's worth giving that voice the floor for a moment, um, out of a little bit of like a little a bit moment, of respect, you know, just like hey, you know, let us let us roll around in this for a moment. Let us just. Um, let us tell our stories because there's a lot of catching up to there's a lot of young women who don't know that other women have lived the same life experience. Like I've caught myself watching films 
or watching even TV shows where I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that other women lived this experience before. And that's ridiculous. I'm nearly 40 years old. And you know, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that surrounds myself with a ton of female friends. So I wouldn't know that necessarily. You know, I, I, I find it really, I find it really valuable. It's like, and also seeing other, other people that look like you, other women that look like you represented on the screens and not the idealized form of what a, an, any male thinks any woman should look like or what the ideal woman looks like, actually just seeing a woman that just looks like a woman and that being sexy and that being okay and that being beautiful and really understanding what that means, not just taking it for face value, but really understanding and analyzing thoroughly what that means and digesting it because you can take those words and just hear them, but you need to be able to really process that. And I'm still processing that. So I think it takes, it's gonna take some time for that to really work. And, you know, as in making, in making our film, I took a step back at some point, in some points of it. And I thought, well, what, it, like, how am I gonna have my voice heard amongst the topics that I'm, ta what I'm, that I'm covering here? Like, I'm, I'm talking about a group of boys skateboarders for the most part. And I have a male lead who's, you know, who I'm following and I'm telling a story about a country with a male dictator <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm like, how, how is this going to work for, for me? And what does this say about me? But I really, you know what it said about you? I, you just went in and just did it. You just did it. And yeah, you won I mean, that award no, and took it home. <laughs> yeah, but I had some self-consciousness about it. I really, right. I really was like, you know, where do I, where does, where does my voice come in? But you know, what to get to go back to what Pete was saying earlier is that it came in 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 my in in my history that has to do with it. That's where I'm able to connect with it and say, you know, really, it has to do with what's this? What story am I really telling? Which is, you know, about smuggling skateboards, about about um, you know, telling the story of my family about describing that postcard in a different way and, and, you know, having Renee help me tell that story and, um, and also tell the story of Cuba and why it is in the place that it's in and, you know, how we can get out of it with the help of the children, you know, so hopefully, and I think that, you know, I think that we kind of accomplished that. And I, I hope that, I hope that that's the way that I was able to do that, but I do have self-consciousness about that because of course, you know, you want to participate in the movement as well. And, you know, it's a challenging subject matter to do that in. You also were able to put two egos in check. I mean, between Renee and uh, Che, you both have them on display. And no, I'm serious. And from a female perspective, you, you allowed them to both have, you know, th there are moments when both are protagonists and antagonists towards each other and particularly towards the end of the film in regards to getting this uh, skate park, you know, done. And there was, you know, they come to loggerheads and you see them both and, and a male film probably wouldn't have displayed it. So it would have been different, I think, in, in the way you was able to allow that display so transparent on the screen. And I think that's what makes for a healthier film. That's an interesting point. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I want to also bring up, you know, Renee, there's been talk of kind of a follow-up documentary and yourself raising funds uh, to get back and, and for the charity to get back and help out. And, 
you know, I, I would love to hear what your vision for that is. And cause I think, I think that would serve the charity very well. And I think the story, it would serve the story very well because uh, I mean, we're all very curious about what's going on with these guys. And, you know, last we spoke, you were, uh, you were talking about going across the Island and, uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that. If you, if you're okay with talking about it. Yeah, 100%. Um, so the, the story kind of leaves us off, I guess around four, maybe three years have passed really since the end of the filming. And then, you know, during that time, my son passed away. I took some time off from the project just to get my, you know, my bearings and then just decide if I was going to continue even or not and decided, you know what, it's, let me just keep pushing to the 10 year mark. And then once I've hit 10 years, I felt like, you know, I owe that much to the project. I'm not going to be a punk, um, even though that's what I wanted. Um, let me push it to 10 years and see, you know, if I don't continue after 10 years, no one can say that, you know, we didn't do our thing. So when it started getting close to that time, I just, I just had this, this, this er, like calling, I guess, to do something that, which is, to do something that my son and I had always wanted to do and just never did, never got to do. We were going to do it um, before his passing, which was to go all the way across the island. And our original idea was to skateboard across the island, um, backpacks, and just kind of rough it and just, you know, stay with farmers or camp or whatever and just really get into the Cuban community that way. And just see the island from a totally different way and to push ourselves. Um, so at one point I was going to do that by myself. And I felt like at that time, since I was struggling so much with what happened, that in my mind, I'm like, if if I do this alone and it really hurts, maybe it'll like heal me because I just feel like I need to like kind of get in the fire. You know what I mean? To come out of this um, in a different way. But and that was the original plan for a long time. And I would do the logistics to it. And right before I would start fundraising for it, I would back out because I just felt like something wasn't right. And I think I was just even, I even just went back recently and watched some of the videos that I had made for like, for like a GoFundMe. And I'm glad that I published any of that stuff because I was just in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bad spot. And, um, but I still, I still knew that I wanted to take the trip. So I thought about it and thought about it. And I think I, at one point and then got in that more of an idea of what I wanted, which was if I do take this trip across the island, instead of it just being something that's just for me, how could I do something that would, number one, leave a kick-ass legacy for my son, but also if it is going to be, the end and it's going to be the bookmark you know what could i do that's really epic and it doesn't necessarily me skateboarding across the island right now is just not the most cost effective thing what would be really cool and some i don't know how i came across the idea what but the idea was going through my messages and my instagram started seeing all these skaters that were reaching out for me to come visit them in all these little towns, you know, it'd be like a text message from somebody, hey, me and my two best friends, we're a skate crew. 
well, we only have one skateboard. We don't care. We love Amigo. And, you know, we'll never be able to come to Havana because we're too young and there's just, we've never even left our hometown. But if you guys ever come to Cuba, please come visit us. And it was like, started scrolling through it and there was all these messages similar, similar to that. All these kids with really cool stories, all these kids writing to me as if they were writing to Santa Claus. You know, and oh, I'm like, that's the way I saw it because I'm reading it and, you know, every, you know, I'd get choked up reading it, but I'm like, what does it mean to the person that's writing that? And when you read it, you can tell by the way they're writing it that I'm like this, you know, it's like they're writing to Santa Claus. It's like this mythical thing that they see on social media. And what they see is, you know, if you go through the post, it's like rad, 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 rad. You know what I mean? Like everywhere Amigo shows up, there's magic happening. So obviously that's not the reality of day-to-day life, but that's what they believe that if that if I show up or we show up, that it's gonna be go skateboarding day. It's gonna be, you know, we're gonna show up in town and it's like <laughs> it's like Santa Claus comes to town uh to bring presents, and, but on the <laughs> Instead of reindeer, he's on his skateboard. <laughs> and instead of bringing elves to hand out the presents, he brought Motley Crue. You know what I mean? But dude, and you so- you have that you have that <laughs> that 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 energy. I mean, when you're you know one another clip from the film when you get that get, ghost skateboarding day going. It is such a special moment in, the, in, in those events. So no doubt these kids are excited about it. And, and the prospect of you doing that and fulfilling some of these kids' wishes, I think would not only make for an incredible documentary, but I think it's something that would spiritually fulfill, like you just said, the bookend of this whole thing. So, I mean, for what it's worth, Dude, I, it, encourage, I encourage you to do it. Anything we can do to help you make that happen, you know, we're, we're here for you. I've been really lucky in my life that, I've been able to meet a lot of my heroes. You know what I mean? Even at a young age. I mean, there's a really cool thing about growing up at the time that we grew up where, you know, like right now, if, you know, Joey Ramone, for example, you know, I could go on YouTube and see a hundred videos and a documentary and did a little, but when I was 16 or 17 years old, there was none of that. So you had to wait for your heroes to come to town and we made it a point to follow the Ramones bus to their hotel because I was, I had to meet Joey Ramone and he was sweet enough to take us in his hotel room. These four little grungy teenagers and hand us all beers and hang out with us for an hour. Just and sure as shit, we followed that bus mm. to the next town the next day and did it all over again. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that when I was 16 years old to meet Joey Ramone, it was like meeting God. And the fact that he was it. really sweet with us and like treated us like we were cool, which we totally weren't. I mean, <laughs> I carry that to, to now. Uh, you know? I mean, that, that's it. That, that is it right there. That is it right there. That, that, that's just incredible. That's absolutely amazing. Hey, and, Pete, if you don't yeah. mind, can uh, we just close out on a small uh, trivial anecdote about the music on the film? Uh, I yeah. was making the music on the film and I wanted to make uh, I wanted to do some sampling, some old school hip hop sampling. And I wanted to do Roger. We wanted to sample um, the Megadeth <laughs> song. And you knew somebody from the Megadeth camp. <laughs> Can you take the listeners through? This is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I did a movie called Officer Down. It was directed by Clown, who's the percussionist from the band Slipknot. 
I produced that. Um, Clown's a great person, but probably shouldn't have directed that movie. And but the manager, who was also an executive producer, is a manager of um, uh, Glenn Danzig and of uh, Megadeth. So I just said, "All right." I mean, it was the most. It was their biggest song, in fact. Uh, Peace sells. Peace sells. Who's buying? Yeah, I love that song. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the intro to MTV News. If you uh, Robert, age, Robert, you Robert the, the great uh, visual artist Robert Longo directed that music video, in the um, which was a great video too. But the the piece, the opening bass riff, is what you wanted. Yeah. And I, you know, politely asked, and he politely asked, and they said no. Or it wasn't so much no. It was so much. Roger, think, they might have showed a figure that we weren't ready. Yeah, to there was a number that meant there was a number on there that said no. Yeah, Wait, was then, this this was for our film? Yeah, we yeah. were making that. We, Roger, trying, Roger wanted to do everything above board, and myself. And, uh, <laughs> How do I not know this story? I don't well, think you're learning right. Is, is there a loop? Um, no. Oh, yeah. Did you make this? Did you did make you cut the... the loop or no? No, that didn't make it. No, we didn't get the Mustaine track in there. But, um, one more thing I have to talk about because, um, Renee, just on the just to go back to the DJ thing real quick, you have a mix out there. And Vanessa, you might be able to, uh, to tell me what it was called, but it got me through summer. Oh, it was your, so it was your, great, your man. And COVID I, I mixes that you sent out. I sent it to you too, George. And I sent it to you, Roger. Oh, it's on SoundCloud. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, on Tropical SoundCloud. Weekend. Oh, dude. Tropical, Tropical Weekend. Weekend on SoundCloud. Weekend. You gotta on listen to it, guys. It's, on SoundCloud. It's yeah. absolutely it's an really awesome, fun. awesome, really awesome fun. thing. You, is that, is your handle, is it your name or do you got a different handle? I think it's Renee Sugar Liqueur. I, I I think that's why if you look up Renee Sugar Liqueur at SoundCloud, there's a couple of mixes that are going to come up. I want to do another one soon, but I'll go. Let me give you one little more little bit. Yeah. Since we were talking about the Ramones, our Robin Hood's of Havana logo is actually the Ramones oh, presidential that's seal. Right. That's <laughs> I knew right. that one. I knew that one. Um, yeah. and, I'm telling and you, then, that should change my life. Meeting him changed my life. Not, I mean, it, not that he did anything special, but you know, I've had the the opposite side of the coin experience meeting heroes and walked away from it like, wow, what an ass hat, you well, know? Well, you know what, Renee? <laughs> yeah. I think that you've had that that same effect on a lot of a lot of people in Cuba, a lot of kids in Cuba, and you certainly had that effect on me too. So, thank you for being part of my thank life. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. So, real quick, a little bit. Where can we um, donate to help? for the movie well that's yeah roger's exactly right that's two things i wanted to touch on one thing um amigo on facebook your amigo skate on facebook has got these killer baseball tees i saw the other day so i want to encourage everybody to get out there and and get some hats get some get some t-shirts it all supports these kids out there um you know renee anything else you can tell us to help the charity because i mean any we we want to keep you guys going and also, Amigo Skate Cuba, the film is on Amazon and on every, basically every major outlet. Vanessa, anything you can tell us about that? Amazon, Amazon Prime, iTunes, uh, any video on demand that you have. If you want to own a DVD copy, you can own a DVD copy. They're available on Amazon at Prime as well. And uh, yeah, just uh, keep on watching and passing it around. Hopefully that'll do something for us. Lisa tells a wonderful story and helps a bunch of kids out. Absolutely. There it is. 
Yeah, guys. Renee, shoot. Tell us what the, what else that we can do to help you. Uh, log on to amigoskate.com and um, we take donations of all sizes. Buy a t-shirt, buy uh, anything that's under that will help. If, you know, send us an encouraging note. We're, we're stoked with all of it. Um, before we go, I just, I want to thank Vanessa again for, for, you know, for writing to or calling us that day and starting this project. I got to be honest with you that after meeting Vanessa and meeting Chris and meeting everybody that was involved on the trip, as soon as we got on the airplane, I forgot that they were like one crew and we were another. And to this day, to me, all those people are still part of Amigo. <laughs> so much so that I'm like, That's Vanessa, great. I want to do something else. You got to be part of it too, because how else would I fucking do it? <laughs> you know I'm there. Like it's you know a no I'm brainer. There. I'm like, well, those people aren't, you mean they're not with us all the time? I'm like what's good? <laughs> I remember taking two or three trips after that. I mean, where's Vanessa? <laughs> what's, what's happening? <laughs> from, anyway. from my perspective, you guys have a family vibe already. So I, I mean, that's a, that's an incredible sentiment. And uh, I, I mean, f- we all thank you guys very much. This has really been just an awesome conversation, and and, and we're really excited about it. So, really and guys- Pete, the only thing I ask is when you open the door, please spray <laughs> a little of that citrus. Open the window and uh, go home safely. Uh, love you guys, and thank you for participating. We'll see you on the next five dollar buzz.